Okay, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you again for another day to gather together like this as your adopted ones. We thank you for your grace, uh, giving us this beautiful place to worship you by concentrating on your word, by listening for your spirit and what your message is for us right now today. And Father, we ask that you open the eyes of our heart tonight, that you humble us, help us hear your message. We don't want our own. We don't want to come in with our own preconceived ideas. We ask that you open us up as need be. And Father, most of all, we are eternally grateful for your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for sending him out of heaven to do the unthinkable once for all for us at the cross so that whoever repents and trusts in him is saved forever and ever and ever by your amazing grace. Please bless this message, Father. Guide us by your Spirit. It's in Christ's precious name we pray. By the power of your Spirit we pray. Amen. All right, The Deceitfulness of Sin, Part 21. I'm going to start with a statement that, um, you know, some people have trouble hearing, uh, even as believers we do sometimes. Uh, maybe it's our self-righteousness a little bit or whatever that gets in the way. But we don't realize how evil we really are in ourselves. And when I say we, mankind in general, we, of which we are all partakers, obviously, even as believers, we don't realize how evil we really are in ourselves. And part of the reason is because evil often disguises it, itself as good. So, you know, we, what, we, what we see as good in ourselves, quote-unquote, is really evil without God, obviously, without relying on God. So it's easy to uh, let our imaginations run away with what might be good about us because we all want to take some credit. Let's face it, our flesh wants to take credit. You may not in your new nature as you hear me say that, but your flesh wants to take credit, at least a little bit. And that's how evil we are, trying to take a little bit of credit away from God, without whom we wouldn't be alive. So this is the verse we started with on Sunday, Genesis 8:21, part B. The imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. That really sets the stage, shows you the weak uh, putty foundation of man. The imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. This verse illustrates what man is starting with, even from his birth. So it's like we had, we had no, no uh, chance, right, on our own. It's not like we were born and then we got infected with sin and we can get rid of it. Do you know what I mean? It's like first we were infected with sin, then we were born. So it's just so in us and um, inescapable. So if man's starting point is sin, how does a man escape from it? How does a man do anything good? And as we've seen, we're born with it like a disease in our bloodstream. You can't do anything about it. It is in and through, throughout us. Since the fall of man... The resultant curse, man always starts from a desolate place called sin. 
and therefore his schemes and motivations are evil, coming from a sick heart. The verse on the board. Our schemes and motivations are evil because of the source, even when it appears to be good. So happy Tuesday, right? I mean, we came here to get cheered up and encouraged and edified. But this is edifying if we embrace this because if we embrace where we come from, then we can embrace the solution. Even as those who are already saved. We all have a little religion in us that we're working out, that God's working out. The truth of the Word of God reveals to us what we need to know, namely that we're worthless and helpless without His help, and that hurts to accept it first. But this rightly sets us up to receive the good news. Who's going to receive the good news? Like really turn to Christ if he doesn't think he really has a problem or he can overcome it himself. And as Pastor stated on Sunday, I I love how this came out from the Spirit on Sunday. This was not in his notes, but it came out near the beginning of the message. We invent ways to distract ourselves, then we imagine it's okay with God. Quite a fantasy land we live in, or the sin nature lives in. We invent ways to distract ourselves, then we imagine it's okay with God. So look at what we do. Look at what we do to God, our Father. It's really horrible. If we look in the mirror, is this not what we do? Sometimes on a daily basis. And is this not evil? You know, we talk ourselves into this being no big deal, right? But is this not evil? Are we not turning on our Creator when we do this? We're saying subtly to God, my ways are better than your ways. I have an idea, Father. I know you said this, but I have an idea. Can I try this? And before I got answered, you say, okay, great, thanks. You know, we imagine it's okay with Him. Because we want our imaginations to run wild and be selfish and do it our own way. So we subtly say to God, my ways are better than your ways, and I'm even going to imagine you're okay with it because you're a God of grace. We use that as an excuse to go against his ways, his preferences for us. And this is all of us, of course. We all do this to to some degree and in different ways. We're born in sin as part of the curse of Adam. So this verse on the board, which we actually already saw, Genesis 8.21, it agrees with what Jeremiah said, which we saw a couple weeks ago, regarding the condition of man's heart without God. Jeremiah 17.9, the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? So these two verses go really well together and give us a description of the sickness and deceptiveness of our hearts without God. And an illustration of this is given by fallen man in Genesis chapter 11. So let's start in Genesis chapter 11 tonight. Go to Genesis 11. So, you know, we know from these verses... We're sick, we're out of line, we're deceptive, we deceive ourselves, running away from God. 
And in Genesis 11, we have an illustration of this, of what man does on his own, following his own imaginations. And as we read this passage, ask yourselves, was man concerned with pleasing God or was man concerned with making a name for himself? All right. In other words, back to the heart, right? What was the motivation? Why did man do this? It's not the act itself that's evil. It's did God want it? Am I doing it for God or am I doing it for myself? Look at Genesis 11.1. 1. Now the whole earth used the same language and the same words. It came about as they journeyed east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. They said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they used brick for stone and they used tar, tar for mortar. They said, Come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven. And let us make for ourselves a name. There's our clue on their motivation. Let us make for ourselves a name. Otherwise, we will be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. The Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they all have the same language. And this is what they began to do. And now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down, and there confuse their language, so that they will not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the whole earth, and they stopped building the city. Therefore its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth. So it's like the Lord knew he couldn't reach man regarding his total depravity when they were all working together as one. Just think about that. It's like the Lord knew he couldn't reach man regarding his total depravity when they were all working together as one. They would rely on their own combined strength and fool themselves into thinking they were good with God. So what did he do? He had to scatter them for their own benefit so he could reach them and save them one lowly soul at a time. It's like when things are going well, right? In our lives, if you think of friends, if you think of yourself before you're in the Word of God, when things are going well amongst your friends and your whole group, there's power in your group. And when things are going well, the last thing you think about really is God. And the last thing you think about is your depravity, how much you need God. So God spread them out. He said, I'm going to put you in situations, basically, right, where we all come to the end of ourselves eventually, and he can reach them and save them. So think about how that might apply to us. There we have another area in which sin is deceitful. Sin convinces man he can accomplish something good on his own without God, especially if everyone's doing it. Think about society. Think about our society today. Think about the power in these different groups or political groups or social groups, right? And there's a certain power in there because you know what? They all agree with one another and they all encourage each other and they're all together doing many times ungodly things. But because they're together, they think they're okay and they think there's a power and they think it's all right. They think it's good. 
I remember being in Catholic church as a, a young man, like I was, I think I was around 13 years old. And I remember looking around the church, the church was full. And because the church was full, I said to myself, this must be right. Look at all these people that are following it. So that's the false security that we get from other people. Think about how sin deceives man in that way that he can accomplish something good on his own without God, especially if everyone's doing it. And you can apply that to so many different things in your own life, in your family's lives. But that's another way sin deceives us. So again, Genesis 8, 21b, the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Jer- Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? On Sunday, the Spirit gave us another quote from Mr. Pink on the board from Total Depravity of Man. He said, Asylums, prisons, and cemeteries are depressing sights, yet they are painful facts of human history. Refusal to consider fallen man's condition helps no one. Until we are brought to realize this truth, we shall never despair of self and look away to another. I love that phrase, despair of self. You know, we, as members of the human race, and this is from the sin nature too, we love to turn a blind eye, right? Someone could be suffering or dying right next to you. And you say, oh, well, it's too bad. And then because you don't want to deal with it, basically you turn a blind eye. And you almost imagine, back to imaginations of the human heart, that it didn't happen. Or it's not as bad as you thought it was. And you just go on with life. People do that every day out there. I've done it, you know, even as a believer. Where you want to turn a blind eye. You don't want to face the truth. So anyway, I love how he puts this. He says, until we're brought to realize this truth, we shall never despair of self and look away to another. This solemn side of the picture is indeed dark, yet it is the necessary background to redemption. Without man knowing the reality of his sinful state, there's no cause for him to turn to Christ. He can say he believes in Christ. He can do it as a token, you know, just because it might be right or covers his butt, as we've talked about for years now. While man's pride defies this reality of his depravity, without it, a man won't honestly turn to Christ to be saved. And so that's part of our struggle, isn't it, as evangelists, as we're trying to share the word with people? Isn't that part of our struggle that people don't want to admit their sin before God or think they're good enough on their own. But we have to just tell people the truth solemnly as it might be or unpopular as the message might be and let the Spirit work with it because without that, without a willingness to accept depravity and helplessness before God, they're not really going to turn to Christ. They're not really going to trust in Him. Without the impetus, there won't be any conversion and therefore no new heart from God. It really is simple. And on the board, this came out on Sunday also, the truth is the easiest of all things to understand. It really is not complicated. Now, pride might reject it and kick against it, but it's really plain as day for man to see. Man is choosing to turn a blind eye. Truth is plain as day for man to see. He just doesn't want to accept it. 
It's our giving in to sin that complicates life, making it confusing and without peace. And we mostly do it to ourselves, if we're honest. But the truth is the easiest of all things to understand. Life would be so much more simple and peaceful if we just follow the truth of God's word and ignored the noise of the world. So simple. So simple. As simple as a young boy following his father wherever he goes instead of making his own path through the woods. It's that simple. And on the board, if we stray, or it's when we stray off the narrow path of truth, that we complicate our lives and create suffering for ourselves. We do it to ourselves. Let's face it, we're just not humble enough to follow God the, that childlike way that we should. So how do we learn? Suffering. Every one of us learns through suffering because of stupid decisions. The question is, how much of that you need? Uh, when will you you know, submit with childlike faith. Again, this we're talking about sanctification, right? We're talking about it's a gradual growth process. But we don't have to learn the suffering way. Matthew seven thirteen through 14, Jesus talks about the narrow path. And turn to 2 Corinthians eleven three, just to see another version of the narrow path. If we stay on the narrow path of truth, it's so simple. It's like scary simple. 2 Corinthians 11.3. And we spare ourselves so much pain. Paul wrote, But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. What's the narrow path? The simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Right? Like a horse with blinders on him. It can only see the cross kind of thing. And you stay and you keep following Christ. You're going to be in heaven on earth, so to speak. Because you're going to have peace. You're going to have supernatural peace. It's when we start looking around. It's when the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness. It's, it's when we listen to the deceitfulness of sin that we suffer and we go off the narrow path like fools. So this is another uh, visual here, this verse of the narrow path for our lives and how sin and Satan try to veer us off the Lord's path. How, how do they do it? How does sin do it? How does Satan do it? How do they get us off the path? Deception. And thus our series on the deceitfulness of sin. Deception. No one willingly goes off the path. I mean, you're somehow deceived if you choose to go off the path. So again, the point on the board, the truth is the easiest of all things to understand. For the humble, anyway. As we saw on Sunday, one of the greatest things about King David was that he didn't complicate his responses to life, even when he sinned. He kept things really simple because David knew the truth. He knew the truth was simple and that God is always to be the centerpiece. 
He just knew that. He knew God. So even when he failed, he wasn't going to mess it up by complicating it, by rationalizing, etc. Uh, turn again to Psalm 51, one. Psalm 51, verse 1. David didn't complicate his problems when he failed. I mean, he did for a short period of his life, right? But overall, he was a man after God's own heart. And he was straight with God. He was honest with God. He didn't try to fool God like foolish people do. Psalm 51.1 Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. On the board, we saw this on Sunday, this phrase against you, you alone, David's humility oozed simplicity. He didn't try to dodge the truth about himself. He owned it, confessed it, repented from it to God's glory. Acts 13.22, a man after God's own heart. Do you see this man, David, complicating the matter here and making it worse, like we all do at times? That's not what he did. Do you see him inventing ways or reasons to get around his sin and avoid confession, to rationalize it away, to justify himself before God and why he did what he did? You don't see any of that, like um, excuse-making. You see confession. David knew only the truth would set him free. David knew that because David knew God. David knew only the truth would set him free. And that includes telling the truth. And we should be quick to learn from his example, as I think many of you are. But... God's working on all of us. We all have different weaknesses. We all have times that we fail worse in this area. But David's just, you know, great to read, right? Great to read that verse over and over in Psalm 51. If we want God's grace even after our failures, we best be humble and own up to it and turn to Him as our centerpiece, never forgetting that it's all about Him. Look again at verse 4. Against you, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being. See that? David knew God. He's like, no lies, no fabrications, no inventions and deceptive imaginings of man. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being, and in the hidden part you will make me know wisdom. It sounds like David knew that God was after his heart. Maybe that's why he was called a man after God's own heart. 
Again, verse 6, Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being, and in the hidden part you will make me know wisdom. Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. In other words, David knew, without you, Lord, I can't do it. I can't cleanse my own heart. But you can do anything, Lord. Straightforward, pure conversation with his God. Simple. The Spirit said it for us this way on Thursday regarding David's humility. He reckoned himself as accountable to God's amazing grace, as if to say it's right to be thankful. I can't overlook this. I can't take God's grace for granted. It's right to be thankful like the rest of my life every day. 1 Thessalonians 15, uh, 5, 16-18 and Romans 6-11. Simple truth. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16-18 in the Amplified. Rejoice always and delight in your faith. Be unceasing and persistent in prayer. In every situation, no matter what the circumstances, be thankful and continually give thanks to God, for this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. Love that translation. So simple. God cares about us. He's telling us, if you just abide in gratitude for all that I've done for you, you're going to be at peace, and I will bless you. The truth is simple. This is my will for you, to be happy abiding with me in the midst of the deceptions of the devil's world. So don't get sucked in to the lies in this world. Keep, keep life simple and give me thanks for everything good in your life and be content. That's, you know, what we might call the secret, right? I mean, obeying this verse on the board you're going to find your life goes a heck of a lot smoother and has a whole bunch less confusion. Our problem, as from Pastor's blog, is that we continually get in the way by entertaining options. God the Father has a life of peace for us, but we decide we know a better way or a shortcut. Not a better way, God. I would never say that. Right? Isn't that what we do? I would never say I have a better way, Lord, but I have a shortcut right over here. Is this okay with you? Okay, I'm going to imagine it's okay with you. Thank you. This is a blessing from you. We, get, we, we go spiral, right? Right down a rabbit hole very quickly when we want our way. We're always looking for options. What tree haven't I eaten from yet, right? On the board, this came out with emphasis on Sunday. Stop entertaining options. And I know this is difficult for us, right, in this country? It's difficult because they're shoved in our face, even when we would rather not. But stop entertaining options. And this might take some change of lifestyle, some type of change in your, um, you know, environment, job, I, I don't know, who you hang with, etc. It might take a change to get out of the uh, availability of it all. Stop entertaining options. That's where your misery is. Who would have thought? Third world Christians have little 
but they're happy because they don't even have the options Americans have which pull us away from contentment. They're so blessed not to have options. And they're at peace overall, just living life, waiting for Christ to come back. Isn't that what we're supposed to be doing? Doesn't that give you the peace when you, when you stop resting on self and trying to create your own life for yourself? Doesn't, isn't, doesn't the peace come from when you live a life of this isn't about me and the Lord's coming back soon and I'm just going to wait content and spread his word and that's it? This is where we might say it's a blessing to be poorer, to have less, and to have less options or distractions away from an intimate relationship with God. Stop entertaining options. Ask yourself this. Do you think your life would be easier if there were no options in your life? Do you think you might even be happier if there were no options in your life? If so, if you can agree with that, maybe you should simplify your life on purpose. And if necessary, make a couple drastic decisions. But pray about it. But we think we're going to suffer when we lose options. But that's the flesh talking. Again, on the board, David's humility. He reckoned himself as accountable to God's amazing grace as if to say it's right to be thankful. We each must ask ourselves, do we do this? Do we do this? Do we you know, reckon ourselves accountable to God's amazing grace and not take it for granted? We also looked at Joseph on Thursday and Sunday. He was another believer who knew in his heart that God was the center of life itself. He stayed close to God he clung to the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. He loved God. He rightly counted his salvation to Christ alone and decided to serve him out of gratitude. And he rightly considered sin as hurtful to his God and Savior. So Joseph's overall attitude was very much like David's. As the Spirit gave us on Sunday, these men knew there was a sovereign pact between the Lord's blessings and their obedience. They knew there was a sovereign pact between the Lord's blessings and their obedience. They knew God. They knew His ways. And that those who listen to Him and honor Him would be blessed because God is gracious. God's waiting to bless us. So we saw several lessons from Genesis 39 on Sunday. Turn again to Genesis chapter 39, verse 1. It's truly amazing how much we can take from just reading our Bibles and reading from examples like Joseph. Genesis 39.1 Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an Egyptian officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the bodyguard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, so he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. 
Now his master saw that the Lord was with him and how the Lord caused all that he did to prosper in his hand. So Joseph found favor in his sight and became his personal servant. And he made him overseer over his house and all that he owned he put in his charge. It came about that from the time he made him overseer in his house and over all that he owned, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house on account of Joseph. Thus the Lord's blessing was upon all that he owned in the house and in the field. So he left everything he owned in Joseph's charge. And with him there was not, or there, there he did not, with him there, I'm sorry, he did not concern himself with anything except the food which he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. It came about after these events that his master's wife looked with desire at Joseph and, and she said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, with me here my master does not concern himself with anything in the house, and he has put all that he owns in my charge. There is no one greater in this house than I, and he has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do this great evil and sin against God? As she spoke to Joseph, day after day, he did not listen to her to lie beside her or be with her. Now it happened one day that he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the household was there inside. She caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. And he left his garment in her hand and fled and went outside. So first of all, on the board, regarding Genesis 39:7 through 12, we have an illustration of how sin doesn't just leave us alone and let us be. It pursues us. Don't be deceived and think it's not going to pursue you even after you've had a victory over it. In other words, don't turn your back. Joseph could have turned his back after his eloquent speech to her, saying, how could I do this great evil against God? Maybe in that moment she said, wow, you're right. Who knows? Maybe in that moment she was humbled. But apparently she kept coming back at him the next day and the next day and the next day. What if Joseph turned his back and said, oh, I already beat that temptation? What if Joseph wasn't on guard? Every enemy waits until you turn around before they hit you. So if you know someone's your enemy, right? Just a simple analogy. If you know someone's against you and you have a conversation with them and maybe you think it's settled. You ever have that happen? Maybe you think it's settled. Maybe you think you talked it out, so to speak. And now your enemy's like humbled. And like, okay, I'm sorry. But if you're wise, you know in your heart that you should not totally turn your back on this person. Isn't that when they pull out the brick and bop you over the head? like in the cartoons. Don't be deceived and think you've ever defeated sin. Don't think sin's not going to pursue you. It's a, one way it deceives us. It gets our, 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 um, our guard down, makes us a little overconfident in thinking that we now control it, and then bam. So again, on the board, we have an illustration here of how sin doesn't just leave us alone and let us be. It pursues us. 
Don't be deceived and think it's not going to pursue you even after you've, after you've had a victory over it. Maybe especially after you've had a victory over it. In other words, don't turn your back. Look at verse 13. Genesis 39, 13. When she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled outside, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought in a Hebrew to us to make sport of us. He came in to me to lie with me, and I screamed. When he heard that I raised my voice and screamed, he left his garment beside me and fled and went outside. So she left his garment beside her until her master came home. Then she spoke to him with these words, The Hebrew slave whom you brought to us came in to me to make sport of me, and, I, and as I raised my voice and screamed, he left his garment beside me and fled outside. Now when his master heard the words of his wife, which she spoke to him, saying, This is what your slave did to me, his anger burned. So Joseph's master took him and put him into the jail, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in the jail. So what also came out on Sunday is, as we know, in this world, if we follow the Lord's ways, like Joseph did here, we will be persecuted. We'll be persecuted for doing the right thing. So get used to it. And this has been happening in my own life and what God's been showing me like from the lessons lately is that when we obey God, when we obey God, especially in the face of others that don't want to go God's way, we're going to suffer first before we're blessed. We're going to go backwards first in terms of what we had in the world, whether it be material or fellowship or support or whatever. When we obey, we're going to go backwards first. We're going to suffer for it in this world. Then God's going to promote us after that. It's just how it goes. And so we have to prepare our minds and say, okay, I want that. I'm willing to obey and suffer first. And then let God take care of me. So we aren't to be surprised and we must keep the faith that God will take care of us and bless us on the other side of it. Look at, for example, verse 21. But the Lord was with Joseph and extended kindness to him and gave him favor in the sight of the chief jailer. The chief jailer committed to Joseph's charge all the prisoners who were in the jail so that whatever was done there, he was responsible for it. The chief jailer did not supervise anything under Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him, and whatever he did, the Lord made to prosper. As pastor stated on Sunday on the board, Joseph's attitude was just like David's in the sense that he knew when he was being tempted and whose glory would suffer had he taken the bait. They actually considered that when faced with sin. Not perfectly, not, you know, never failing, but that's what they considered. That's where their heart was at. Whose glory is going to suffer if I take the bait? Joseph cared about God being given glory in his life. He didn't want to tarnish God's name by sinning against him. And isn't that what we do when we follow through with a sin and then we're found out? Isn't that what we do? Isn't, don't we end up tarnishing his name somehow? So ask yourself this. What if Joseph, 
gave in to that temptation with Potiphar's wife? What would Potiphar and his household have thought of the Hebrews' God? How many people became saved because of how uh, a man of, the man of integrity that Joseph was? And because of his actions, they turned to his God. We don't know, but we can fairly guess a heck of a lot because of the respect Joseph had. What if Joseph disrespected Pharaoh and his wife? What would they have thought of his God? On the board, for us, especially when people know you're a Christian, what you do reflects on the Lord Jesus Christ, whether you like it or not. We refrain from sin because we care about God and His glory. That's the best motivation. We refrain from sin because we care about God and His glory. And that's why we should rather be wronged if necessary. Consider this a little further. If Joseph did take the bait and sleep with his master's wife, how would his life and even his death have changed? Because eventually you found out, right? How would his life and even his death possibly have changed? Our imaginations can run wild with that, right? Might have been put to death on the spot one day. So follow this further. Would he ever have become the second in command of all of Egypt? Possibly not. We don't know. God can, you know, turn evil into good. But would he, would he have? We, we don't know for sure. The, the course of his life would certainly have changed in some way. Would Joseph have ever had the privilege of representing the one true God as he saved the whole known world from famine through that position he was given? The consequences of sin were avoided due to Joseph keeping the Lord and his name first in his life. He was a vessel of honor. Maybe he still would have been promoted by God eventually, but there would have been painful consequences in his life had he given in to sin, just like David suffered painful consequences in his life when he gave in to sexual temptation too. So a key emphasis that's been blending into our messages as of late is this on the board. Wait on God's blessings and God's timing, period. Wait on God's blessings and God's timing, period. That's the only way you don't lose out. You know, you take a shortcut, you think you're, you're whatever, advancing, quote-unquote, getting what you want, but suffering always comes behind disobedience. Wait on God's blessings and God's timing, period. Otherwise, you don't want it because you're going to suffer. Uh, how many times we need to learn that personally, huh? Joseph had humility and self-control when tempted by Potiphar's wife. And he was rewarded with a wife and children of his own years later. Not to mention the privilege of guiding the entire nation of Egypt and saving his own family from the famine. Why did Joseph get to see that amazing day in his life? because he was willing to wait on God's timing and God's blessings. It's really that simple. He didn't let sin 
convince him to take the shortcut and get it now. On the board, ultimately, Joseph's love for God saved him from destroying his own life. He obeyed out of love, and God blessed him greatly for it. That's, as we've been noting, the way or the reason to obey is love. And Joseph actually cared about hurting God, as we know from Genesis 39.9. Ultimately, Joseph's love for God saved him from destroying his own life. He obeyed out of love, and God blessed him greatly for it. He didn't want to hurt God, and those who honor God in this, this way, or those who hold on to their affections for him, are going to be blessed beyond the norm in God's perfect timing. And Joseph knew that, down in his heart, so to speak. He knew that. He knew God. He just respected God and loved God enough because he didn't take for granted God's grace towards him. Right? He was accountable to that grace. And he said, how could I do this thing against God? Turn in your Bibles again to 1 Peter 3.10. 1 Peter 3.10. This is basically an illustration of what we were just talking about. 1 Peter 3.10. For the one who desires life to love and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears attend to their prayer. Again, verse 12. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears attend to to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, just like David and Joseph did. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. We got to make a decision, everybody. Are we willing to go that route? Are we willing to suffer first when we obey, you know, and then know God's going to bless us in the future? Another emphasis on Sunday came from this passage in verse 16, which is to keep a good conscience. There's nothing quite like that, as we've noted. It gives us a peace that goes beyond the world. When you listen to the conscience, the Holy Spirit is guiding you with. When you listen. 
our conscience is always speaking to us, right? I mean, if you're alive, it's speaking to you. Unbelievers hear it all the time and don't want to hear it, right? They're resisting it. God gave us that wonderful tool graciously at the moment of salvation, a new heart, right? And a good conscience. Now it says here, hold it fast. Keep it. Hold on to it. Don't let it go. This is the, the most, one of the most valuable tools God has given us to speak to us personally. And that's why it says in verse 16, keep a good conscience. Be willing to be reviled for Christ. Do what God convicts you of doing or saying and be willing to suffer. The other option is to listen to the serpent on the board. The serpentine pattern, sin at the core, wants us to question God. Our deliverance is tied to our persistence in counting our true blessings. That's something to really think about. Sin at the core wants us to question God. Our deliverance is tied to our persistence in counting our true blessings. Not looking at what we don't have, looking at what we do have. Thanking God for the health we do have. Thanking God for the people we do have. Thanking God for the church and the pastor we do have. Instead of looking at the tree we're not supposed to eat from. That's what sin wants us to do. Question God. Why don't I have everything? Remember, sin is going to be relentless in your life. It's going to keep pursuing you, trying to track you down. But if we consider God first, and this is where heart issues come up, if we consider God first as our first priority, as our Savior, He will deliver us one way or the other as we obey Him. And He will take care of us on the other side. As also came up on Sunday, sometimes the Lord calms the storm, sometimes He calms the sailor. Isn't it up to God which method He decides to sanctify us by in the moment? I mean, at times in our lives, we're probably going to have both of these, right? Many times, probably. Sometimes he's going to say in his divine wisdom, it's right to calm the storm right now and show you a miracle. Sometimes he's going to say, I'm going to have to show you a miracle in you. I'm going to let the storm rage. I'm going to do something in you. But isn't it up to God what method he uses? And sin says, no, that's not fair. He should do it, you know, basically the way you want. Why doesn't he calm the storm for you? Does he not love you? Don't listen to sin, right? And the key, what's the key? No matter what God decides, no matter what He decides is right for you in that moment, abide in gratitude. That can save us from so many deceptions and heartaches. Abide in gratitude. Thank God for the storm. Easier said than done, right? Thank God for the storm. Just do it. You might not, quote-unquote, feel like it. That's okay. That doesn't matter. Bow your head, submit, and thank God for the storm. And watch how He works in your life. Watch the peace He gives you in the middle of the storm. Abiding in gratitude can save us 
from so many deceptions and heartaches. Sin lies to us as to how God does things and about His timing of things. And we all too often pray for relief instead of deliverance, as we heard on Sunday and from pastor's blogs, right? We all too often pray for relief instead of deliverance, instead of the solution. But we know God always has a plan, despite what sight tells us, and despite not understanding God's ways or timing in the moment. We're back to faith. But never let sin convince you to doubt God. At its core, that's what it wants to get us to do. And we win in the end, remember. Whether or not you see the other side of a certain situation and the blessings of God directly doesn't matter. Whether or not you live through a certain situation, you're going to win in the end in heaven and be rewarded for faithfulness according to God's plan and God's word. So we win in the end. Never forget that. Don't let sin convince you to doubt God because this is already over. It's already complete. Christ has already won the victory for us. Don't let sin convince you to doubt God, to question God, and be like, why are you doing it this way? Why can't I have what I want? Lest we become a uh, people proverb, one of the people that becomes a proverb for others because of their constant resistance and disobedience to God, such as in Romans 128 we saw on Sunday. So at this point, as we close, I want to go over uh, one more point and just a couple more verses. So we come from total depravity, right? We come from total depravity. And we're chained to a sin nature while we're in this body. And the thing we have to realize, even as believers, we have unlimited potential for depravity unless we stay humble before the Lord. We have unlimited potential to go back to the mire, you know, to live in depravity. The deceitfulness of sin is going to always be barking at us, you know, very, very persistent. So I'm going to skip a few slides here, just one as we close. The deceitfulness of sin. The only hope we have is the light of the Word of God. Stand firm and resist the schemes of the devil. Have love for God and let that love rescue you from yourself. We saw that in Genesis 39, 9b, where Joseph's love for God rescued him from the situation. And we see it in Ephesians 3, 14 through 21 and Ephesians 6, 11. So as we close, let's go to Ephesians 6, 11. Again, what do we do about this deceitfulness of sin that's pursuing us? It's like wicked. It's horrible. What do we do? The only hope we have is the light of the Word of God. Stand firm and resist the schemes of the devil. Have love for God and let that love rescue you from yourself. Let that love rescue you from the deceitfulness of sin. Because that's where the power is, right? The power is in the love of God. Ephesians 6.11, 
Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Pretty simple. Put it on, though. You have to put it on. You have to choose to put it on, to have love for God, for example. And go to Ephesians 3.14. Ephesians 3.14 For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. I'm going to go out on a limb and say Joseph and David knew the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. They knew God. And that's why they loved him so much. They knew him and they knew how much God loved them. To know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Again, the point on the board. The only hope we have is the light of the word. Stand firm and resist the schemes of the devil. Have love for God and let that love rescue you from yourself. Amen? All right, let's bow. Father, we thank you so much for your word, your amazing grace toward us, opening our eyes to the deceitfulness of sin, opening our eyes to the proper way to look at you and have affections for you and gratefulness in our hearts at all times. Father, help us to submit to you on a daily basis, submit to your word, and know that your ways truly are better than our own ways. And Father, help us also spread this good news of obedience, of surrender to Christ. Help us spread that to a lost and dying world that needs it so desperately. It's in Christ's precious name we pray, by the power of your Spirit. Amen. Thank you.